And that mindset, it says one and only one thing. I just need more leads. Give me more leads and everything will be okay. It's a nice idea, but I promise you more leads 99.9% of the time will not solve the key problems or key growth strategies in your business. Welcome closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. Season one, focused on marketing. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred or a thousand doors, this is the show that's going to help you see the big picture and get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Meet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, we are recording the final episode in season one, which has been all about marketing. We've had a ton of great guests that have dissected property management marketing from pretty much every angle, but we haven't yet talked about probably the most conversation, and that's the one about metrics, growth metrics specifically. That's what we're going to be talking about today, and we have two special guests to do it. The first is Brad Larson from San Antonio, Texas. He was a guest earlier in the season, and we brought him back because not only is he a smart operator, he's actually growing in large part because he knows his numbers. Our second guest is Daniel Craig, a longtime friend and now chief profit coach at Lead Simple. He works with property management entrepreneurs to help bring clarity to their numbers and identify growth opportunities and uncover hidden profits. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us, Jordan. Appreciate it. Good, good to be here. Good to join you. So guys, we're going to be doing the traditional why, how, what framework, which I am a huge fan of. We're going to start off by talking about the why, about why the numbers and the metrics even matter. I love the quote, you can't measure it, you can't improve it, Lord Kelvin. There's three problems that we're trying to tackle. We're going to cover each of these point by point. Each of these problems is something that we individually have felt a lot of frustration about. I'll start with the first problem that I see over and over again. And this problem has been happening since I've been in the industry in 2008. And that is confusion about what really matters. I talk to a lot of folks that in the absence of clarity, of really knowing what they need to do to grow, default towards the lowest common denominator type thinking. And that mindset, it says one and only one thing. I just need more leads. Come hell or high water, the one solution is just give me more leads and everything will be okay. It's a nice idea and more leads would be great, but I promise you more leads 99.9% .9 of the time will not solve the key problems or key growth strategies in your business. Unless you've already solved all the other challenges, you have everything dialed in and you genuinely just need a stream and flow of, of glistening leads, it's more likely than not that there are other bottlenecks in your process. But if we don't have any metrics to facilitate that conversation and that clarity, we go right back to, you know, fire up APM, whip out the credit card and everything's going to be okay. It's not the case. Danny, what is, what's the recurring problem you see that you want to bring to the table? Yeah, well, I think tied to the idea, I just need more leads. I think we go there because we don't have a lot of clarity on 
really how to grow, how to about, how to go about the growth process. And uh, of the the property management entrepreneurs that I've talked to so far, one of the recurring themes that's come out is that we tend, uh, and this isn't just in property management, but we tend to run the business based off of gut feelings because uh, we don't really have anything better. Um, we have a hunch that maybe we could improve uh, our our profitability this way or that way, or maybe if we spent a little bit more marketing, we might uh, on marketing we might be able to capture more market share. But it's all kind of hunch and gut feeling. Uh, and, and the problem with that is that it paralyzes decisive action and growth. Uh, when you're only half sure about something, you're kind of half-hearted about how you move forward with the action in most cases. Tied to that, uh, when there's a lack of clarity, uh, you don't know where your greatest opportunities are. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, maybe how we look at our finances. Uh, I've seen I've seen a lot of different uh, profit and loss statements from property management entrepreneurs. And typically, you know, you have anywhere from, you know, 100 to 200, 250, maybe even 300 line items on your profit and loss statement. And it's like, at some point, it's like, I, this is so much information, I don't know where to focus. And at the end of the day, what happens is you get lost in the trees. And what you really need is, is an understanding of the key metrics uh, that will help you do a few things. First of all, help you evaluate acquisitions. Uh, if you're wanting to grow, uh, h- how to evaluate acquisition through your own sales pipeline or uh, by acquiring another property management company. Um, you need a metric to help you understand how much you can afford to spend on your marketing. Uh, you need a metric to help you understand and evaluate your marketing return on investment. And then once you have more customers on board, you need to have a metric to evaluate if your labor is being used efficiently such that you can actually service those customers in a profitable way. So I think uh, to tie it all together, there's confusion because we lack good metrics on the key points of the business uh, in terms of the levers that will actually drive profitable growth. Brad, you were one of the first guys that we talked to about doing the benchmarking study, and you had your own kind of pent up frustrations. A lot of it centering centered around using the same words to mean different things and how problematic that is in trying to have a productive conversation. Walk me through some of those challenges that you've seen in the industry. Well, one of the reasons that you and I have been talking about this for a long time is I want to get everybody on the same page. And this has been said before. It goes back to the root of a NARPM event about three, four years ago where Tony Dross did a presentation at NARPM, the Broker Owner Conference, and attempted to get 15 to 20 different companies to give them their company metrics and compile them and actually make sense of them. And what came out of it was a pretty neat drill, but it was just the, just the teaser. It wasn't the whole thing. And what came out of it, again, was stuff that would would give us a metric to compare left and right. How do we know what our staffing ratio is compared to somebody in another market or even in the same market? And, yeah, there's going to be some asterisks there if you're comparing a market in California to a market in Texas or Florida or wherever else. Sure. But it can be gauged a little bit. And that really kind of set me on the tone of, Let's get on the same page because everyone that's starting to do acquisitions now, which is the flavor of the the month for property management companies, uh, either you're getting ready to sell or getting ready to buy somebody or something falls in your lap. Well, how do you know if they're healthy unless you get into the books and dig in line by line by line by line, and then you have to convert them? Um, You know, there's so many little things that that we could narrow down to, and, and Daniel may have touched on this. When you get a GL account, who really knows what a GL account should be or a chart of account should be for a property management company? 
kind of have to create your own. Am I right, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, exactly, because I've seen, like I said, you know, so many different ways of naming the same thing. And until there's some uniformity, we're really at a loss as to be able to compare my financials with your financials in any meaningful way. That's, that's really the big part of it as well. I'd love to be able to compare financials with another company, uh, one, to see if we're healthy. You know, that's, that's one of the biggest parts. If we're healthy by comparison, we know we're on the right track. If we know our ratios are off, then we know we need to correct some things. And this is where this project is going to get us to that point by putting us all in the same term and then letting us all know if we're healthy or not healthy to a, to a reasonable amount. You know, I mean, if, if your numbers are way off versus mine, it doesn't mean anything bad. It just means you might be doing something different. So we just look at another number. There's always going to be numbers that can relate across industry. I think one of the cool things about this too, Brad, is, you know, the, the idea that we can help each other in the industry uh, is is a lot improved if we can actually talk the same language, you know. <laughs> so uh, there there can be a lot of synergy between uh, property management entrepreneurs, but if they don't have common lingo and common terms and common ways of understanding things, that whole helpfulness dynamic is is limited quite a bit. So Brad, you talk about some of this stuff on your own podcast, and for for those of you who don't know or haven't seen it, you should definitely check out propertymanagementmastermind.com. Great podcast. Um, Brad's had a ton of guests on and I've listened to most of the episodes. Last few episodes, one with uh, from Seacoast, one with Tom Sedlak talking about HOA. Really good actionable stuff there. So if you haven't checked out Brad's podcast, definitely jump on that. Let's move on to talking about the how. And when we talk about the how with growth metrics... For me, it really starts with talking about unit economics. A basic definition, what is unit economics? It's the direct revenues and costs associated with a particular business model expressed on a per unit basis. And it's really a, a really basic question to ask when evaluating any business model opportunity is, can I make more profit for my clients than it costs me to acquire and service them? Unit economics helps you answer that question. And if you understand the micro, you can understand the macro. And if you don't understand the micro, you don't understand the macro. Brad, I mean, gutterly, do you agree with that statement that if you understand the micro, you can understand the macro? Jordan, just one other comment on that. You know, we had the master property management mastermind in uh, Puerto Vallarta in July and, and we spent the first day going through the macro of everybody's books. And that was enlightening. And that was helpful uh, looking at the big picture in terms of, you know, my annual, you know, you know profit and loss statement and, and what, are the, what are the key players and how does, you know, profitability come out. But when we – on the second day, when we took it down to the level of unit economics and we said, okay, now let's break down your big picture financials into a per unit basis. I don't know if you remember this, but it was like the light, lights went on like – Okay, now I understand this because it it's it's like it brings it down home on a per door basis. Yeah, it definitely is a different perspective that people don't always get, and that perspective is lost in the conversation about doors. How many doors you got? Five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred. It matters. It's it's relevant in the conversation, but it's probably a lot less useful than some of the other lenses you can look at. But so if somebody's wants to start looking at their business through the lens of unit economics, what what would actually be required to do that, Danny? Yeah. So I think a couple of things, two main things. 
you have to have your financial data organized uh, in, in a helpful way. Secondly, you have to know what your operational data is, particularly as it relates to your unit informa- your unit numbers. And I'll talk about each of those specifically. First, your financial data. Uh, it's not it's not just a matter of hey can I you know call up my CPA or my bookkeeper and have them send me a profit and loss statement, but rather organizing your finances in a way that actually tracks and gives clarity to the key drivers in your business. You know, so for example, you, here are some questions uh, as you think about your own profit and loss statement. Could you look at your profit and loss statement and in three seconds identify? exactly what your total marketing spend is uh, on a monthly basis, all your marketing costs, your internet marketing, your website development, uh, maybe your marketing consulting, your BDM and your you know BDM commissions. Could you identify that really quickly? If you can, great. Um, what about uh, your client facing labor? Do you know exactly what it's costing you on a, on a per month basis to provide all your client-facing labor value. If you know that, great, but uh, I've seen uh, lots of profit and loss statements, and typically client-facing labor, direct labor what is what we call that, is not, is not broken out. So it's about organizing your, your profit and loss statement in such a way that you have a financial dashboard that's you know, giving enough specific information to be helpful. You know, if you have a, a, a dashboard on your car and there's only one warning light, that's not going to be very helpful. You know, typically that's how we often look at a profit and loss statement. You know, everything from top to bottom doesn't really make a lot of sense to us in many cases until we get to the bottom line. And if profitability isn't is out of whack, then we get concerned. It's like one light on your dashboard. But what we need is a well-designed financial report that gives clarity on specific aspects. Is it is it my, that my tires are low? Is is you know do I need to check my transmission fluid or my uh, my oil? What specific dimension of my business is out of whack? And that's what a good financial statement will give you. So once you have that good financial statement, then what you can do is layer over that your unit information uh, and particularly three dimensions of, of your unit count. Uh, you need to know on a month-by-month basis what your beginning units under management are. Uh, secondly, you need to know how many you added over the month. Thirdly, you need to know how many you lost uh, that month. Now, one of the big no-nos in tracking uh, your your unit information is just tracking net growth and loss. So, hey, if I lost three and I gained five, uh, then my net growth was two. Um, but it's really crucial to be able to uh, track both the units added and the units lost. And we'll talk about how that plays into some of the metrics in a moment. But the big picture is once you have that unit count, you can lay that information over your financial statement and break your financial statement, everything from revenue to marketing to direct labor to management labor to other aspects of your income and expenses down into a per unit basis. And that's how you get unit economics that really uh, uh, drive down to the bottom line, which is on a per door basis, how's my business functioning and what's my per door profit? That per door profit number is the big number that you need to know in order to understand if you're driving, if you're if you're running a good business. Yeah, and to parlay on that a little bit, if I may, Daniel, you're talking yeah. about the, the unit ad, unit lost. So part of this study we're wanting to do is to figure out what is normal, you know, air quotes, what is normal in the industry for what Jordan may call churn. Uh, I call it lost accounts. You can call it any different things. But part yeah. of the study is to figure out what we call it, right? So exactly. let's call it churn for now. 
uh, units added, units lost, the average should be around 15%. It could be as high as 20. It could be as low as 10. These are also international metrics. We lost 15. Actually, we lost 20% in 2016 with a big sell-off. This year, we're probably going to be around 12 to 14% for losses. But management companies could or should expect around that 10 to 15% of loss every year. And that's 40 years of experience from Bob Walters, who is MC in the PM Growth Summit. Right, Jordan? Yep. He'll tell you yep. the exact same Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. The exact same thing he'll tell you. That 10% churn is about where you should stay, 10 to 15%. That's the part of the, what we're doing with this study is to actually give somebody yeah. that metric of, okay, it's great you're tracking it, but what does it mean? How do I compare? Yeah. Now we know. Yeah. So that's a metric we want to all get on the same page to, one, define it, and then actually mm-hmm. put some parameters around it. When you start looking at the micro and you actually start tracking things, how does this actually impact behavior? Because we've all had this point of hearing, oh, I got to track this stuff and get these reports, whether it's Google Analytics, whatever. It's really easy to get overloaded with reports. If it works and you do it right, when you have insight into this sort of stuff on a more granular level, how do you envision it actually impacting day-to-day operations for a property management entrepreneur. Absolutely. I'll tell you exactly how. Thanks for asking that because Daniel's exact example of what's that churn rate? 15%. This is where you get down into the weeds. What of those homes, when you lost them, were good losses, neutral losses, or bad Mm -hmm. losses? And that's where you determine you need to change policy. For example, if you had 40% of your losses were bad losses, meaning your owners fired you. you got to figure out why. Why are they firing you? Are, you? are you not calling somebody back? Are you not emailing? Are you doing a poor job? And then if a lot of those other losses, let's say you have 20 30% are good losses. Why are they good? You sold the home or your referral partner sold the home. That's actually a good loss. Does it really count against your losses? It does. But that's a good loss because you should be making money from that, right, if you're, if you're mm-hmm. capturing that sale. Yeah. So to dig mm-hmm. down into that one category yeah. of losses – there's granular ways to go with it. Using your term granular, you can break it up in three, four, ten different ways, and that's going to identify service issues that you can plug and fix. Completely agree. You brought it up, so I'm just going to reiterate the point. Bob is emceeing the PM Grow Summit. Brad and Danny and myself are all speaking. Guys, if you haven't got tickets yet, go to pmgrowsummit.com. Check out the agenda. That's going to be a great event. And what we're talking about right now is – going to have an even bigger focus than it did last year. We want to graduate from that conversation of starting off just talking about operations, no focus on sales and marketing. And then we start talking about sales and marketing, but we're doing it outside of the context. We're not linking it to, to profit. We want to graduate the conversation even further and talk about sales and marketing in the context of overall profit. That's what's going to happen at pmgrowsummit.com. Go get your tickets if you don't have them already. Moving on. Now, what everybody came for, to talk about the actual specific numbers to make sure that we're not just blowing hot air. We were talking before the call, and we were kind of trying to distill things down to some, some buckets, right? Because all of these granular submetrics are useful. But if you're starting somebody from scratch having this conversation, it's great to have some easy, uh, a small number of potent buckets to, to grab onto. There are three that we identified that we're going to be looking at and then talking about the metrics, the submetrics that are related to each of them. 
The first of these is client, not customer, client acquisition cost. Brad, walk me through client acquisition cost, why why it matters and how you think about that number in your own business. Yeah, let's start with the definition. So to give the, the listeners and watchers some background, we've been debating on what to call it for a while. It came across as customer acquisition, right? We both but- got our hands slapped by Brad, <laughs> big time. In a good way. This illustrates a great point of why we're doing this because now we can get on the same page. We want to call it client acquisition cost because our owners, according to all legal definitions, are clients. They're not customers, so they're clients. So client acquisition cost is going to be you know, the, the term we're going to use, and then we're going to work to define what actually goes into it. And I came up with all these five, six different metrics that we probably don't need. What we really need is just two or three as the definition of client acquisition cost. We're going to pick that as a group and then define it. So when I ask a property management company owner in the East Coast in Florida, hey, man, what's your client acquisition cost? According to these definitions that we're going to put out, we're speaking the same language. It's exactly apples to apples versus, you know, if, if, it's, if it's left to willy-nilly, then I'm including my intrinsic costs, I'm including my car, I'm including my gas, I'm including, you know, all the silly stuff that you could include, printers, paper, toner, pens. You see where I'm going? I mean, everything Air, goes oxygen. Under, oxygen, exactly. Everything goes underneath there, but we don't need to know all that. All we need to know are some key two or three definitions divided by the number of clients you have. Boom, there's your client acquisition cost. So this is an easy one, though, to talk about where it gets gets confused because this one's really clean. People confuse customer acquisition cost with cost per lead, meaning most folks only tend to look at their marketing dollar spend and they ignore either formal sales labor in the, in the form of um, a BDM or their time spent. I think that's the most frequent way that people screw this number up. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think... It has to do with other things that could factor in. You know, are, if you're using four and a half, are you factoring them into your client acquisition costs? Well, you should. And, and this is a sort of thing just to kind of, you know, talk a little bit about the benchmarking study. What we're doing is everybody that's a participant in the study, we're, we're going through every single line item in the chart of their accounts, whether it's, you know, some people break it down to, you know, manage my property spend or, you know, lead gen spend from that website. We're rolling all that stuff up into the exact ingredients uh, and, and making really clean apples to apples comparisons from different participants so that we can actually give you an accurate metric for what standard CAC is. We talked about three buckets, three high-level buckets that if you get these right, your business is going to be a well-oiled machine. The first was client acquisition cost. The second, client lifetime value. Danny, CLTV, we've all talked about it. Why does it actually matter? Yeah. So, I mean, customer lifetime value is... Is, is just a powerful number because it really takes a look at and says, okay, instead of just looking at, hey, this client generated X revenue this year for me, it really looks at uh, and gives, give, it's a metric to give the full picture of, of what that client is going to give back to you for all that you've put into them in terms of your marketing spend and in terms of the, the ongoing service that you're providing. So lifetime value basically just says, what is over the lifetime that this customer, this client, Brad, I caught myself, that this client is on board with me, uh, how much revenue are they going to generate? Very simple concept. Now, let me break that down a little bit more. Here's a couple of scenarios to, to help clarify why this is an important metric, especially as it relates to marketing. 
let's say uh, one guy, Joe, uh, has an average lifetime value of about $10,000 for every door that he manages. And let's say that his client acquisition cost is 500 bucks a door. So when he spends $500 on marketing, he's going to get a new client that's going to give him $10,000, just going to generate $10,000 over the lifetime that that client is with him. Those are, those are pretty standard numbers. Now, let's say there's another guy who's just absolutely set on growth. So he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to gobble up market share by spending $1,000 for each new client. So he's, he's, he's going to bump his client acquisition cost up to $1,000 per client. Let's say that because he's so focused on growth, though, he hasn't really taken the time to think through how he's going to be providing top-notch service to his clients. So they end up leaving him a little too early, and and the result is that his client lifetime value, instead of being 10K, is actually only 5K, and I have seen this happen. Even if he gets twice as many clients as the guy spending $500 per new customer, which, which probably isn't likely, but even if he gets twice as many clients, he is not generating a dollar more in revenue, even though he's spending four times as much in marketing. So one guy with 10 clients, another guy with 20 clients, if this guy has a lifetime value that's twice as much, they're generating the same amount of revenue overall, but this guy over here spent four times as much on marketing. So what client lifetime value does is really gives you a bird's eye view as to whether or not you're really in a place of, hey, are my, are my clients happy with me? You should be at least 10 to 12K is what we're seeing so far in terms of client lifetime value. So you want to be at an acceptable level before you step on the marketing gas. And then once you're in a good spot there, you can measure your client lifetime value compared to your customer acquisition costs and say, hey, I think I can justify spending $1,000 per new client because my client lifetime value is really great. I can justify making that spend. So that's a couple of perspectives as, as to how client lifetime value affects the business. Part of this benchmarking study is going to actually help define what and how to get to a client lifetime value. Because I'm thinking in my head, man, I'm only six, seven years old. I can fudge some numbers, but tell me how you want me to define it. Do I take the last three years? Do I take the last five years? Do I take, do I just throw a number at a dartboard? So part of this benchmarking study, guys, and everybody listening, is that the two of us, all three of us, are going to come together on how we actually define that. And if you can't define it, we're going to help you at least use a gauge of your last year or two year or three years of data, and you can prorate it. So we're going to come up with a formula that will actually be the CLV for you. Just to be clear, the reason Brad is in the room is because Brad is a property management entrepreneur. I do not. Danny does not run a property management company. We got the E. We're entrepreneurs, but we are not operators. So we want to add value, but we cannot do that outside of the context of working with other smart operators. So we got Brad. We got a handful of other uh, basically a board of advisors for the study that's kind of helping to inform our approach, methodology, etc. That said, Brad, you bring up a good one. And, and Danny, I think we may have already cracked a nut on calculating CLTV on this one. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons there's been confusion on customer lifetime value is because people are just scratching their heads like, you know, how do I even know? I mean, the, the way they think about it is, well, I got to take my average average revenue per client and then I got to multiply that somehow, be, you know, by some like average months that the client stays with me. And so they're digging into their property management system like, hey, how long has this client been with me? Well, that client's not been with me as long and they try to come up with some average. So it's really, really tricky to get that information. That's not the right way to uh, calculate it. Here's how you calculate it. You calculate it based off of your churn. And so that's where really tracking your turnover helps you, uh, and not just net churn, but your actual, how many units you lose on a per month basis is how you calculate your lifetime value. So very simple. Uh, If your churn rate on an annual basis on an average is 20%, and let's say your annual contract value is, um, let's say, two grand. What that basically means is you're going to lose about 20% of the value of that contract every year in churn. So you're just using a simple mathematical formula of dividing uh, your annual contract value by your annual churn rate is how you calculate customer lifetime value. See, that's stuff we got to know. That's stuff we're going to put out. I love it. I love that's a simple way to calculate it because we're all going to scratch our heads saying, how the heck am I supposed to come up with that? The software is not going to tell me that. So great stuff, Daniel. I'm like loving it. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Jordan and I are uh, near the PM Growth Summit. We're going to be releasing a new software that will calculate all of this stuff for you. So all these metrics within a couple of months, we already have uh, five clients on beta. They're loving it. There's going to be an online dashboard where you can go in and you can know month to month what is my churn rate? What's my client lifetime value? And all of that. Would you like fries with that? Yes, that's going to be awesome. And at the end of the day, use it, don't use it. It doesn't matter. We don't care who you pay, what vendors you use, what your property management software is. All we care about is that we have clarity and that we're, when we're at the bar and we're having these conversations, that we're not BSing each other, that we're actually talking straight, we're not overblowing our numbers, and that there's less rather than more confusion. We talked about client acquisition cost. We talked about client lifetime value. Now, let's make the very important point is that you still, as as great as it would be if everybody tracked those numbers, you still have to segment. Client acquisition cost needs to be segmented by channel. Your overall global number is great, but what I want to know is what is your client acquisition cost for all property management versus that pay-per-click campaign versus your website versus that realtor referral program that is free, but you're spending a bunch of time knocking on people's doors and maybe you're not even factoring in the labor that goes into that. So you got to segment your client acquisition cost. That's a really important thing to point out. The, the overall number is is of less utility than the segmented number, in my opinion. And then same thing with client lifetime value. Brad, how do you think about the segments within your your business? You do, you do not do traditional multifamily, correct? Multifamily? No, we don't do a lot of that. All right. So then how do you think about the segments within your business? You've got the accidental versus the intentional investors. Are there any other segments that you would look at to want to know the difference in overall client lifetime value from one segment? Absolutely. One of the things we track is multiple property owners. So if you own two or more properties, we consider you an MPO and we track you a bit differently because that's also a person we can potentially get to buy more homes from us. So the MPOs may have a little bit, of course, monetary value just because they have more home. 
uh, or more homes to manage, but those are the folks that could be investors for us. And so one of the things I want to touch on, Jordan, and I'm kind of hijacking you a little bit, but I want to get this out there, is going by the, the model of Scott Fritz, uh, the 40-hour work year, we track five to six, really five hardcore metrics as the benchmark of our business. And so we want to implement and work with you guys on how you guys can make that part of what you put into this this uh, this whole project is picking out five or six important metrics. So, for example, if I may, management fee revenue per door managed. Okay, simple stuff. Daniel mentioned it. Then we go to total management revenue per door managed. Here's another fork in the road. Do we include maintenance? Do we not include maintenance? Right? Think about it. If you include the maintenance cost, are you making money on maintenance or not making money on maintenance? If it's a pass-through, if it's pass-through money, no. You don't consider it. If you're making something for maintenance, either preferred vendor discounts or some sort of overcharges, that should be considered in total management revenue per door. So the other line we look at is total growth percentage year over year. That's a very important metric from Scott Fritz. He wants to know if you're growing. And if you track those year over year, like what are we doing November this year compared to November of last year? Uh, I could say my number, but I don't want to brag. (laughs) Uh, The big one I think we're getting to, and uh, steal your thunder a little bit, Jordan, on the, the employee one is percentage of total company staff expense to revenue. Like we were talking about that earlier. Uh, that's one I want you guys to kind of touch on because I think as far as management companies, we want to know where we are. And, and let me give you the full talking point and you guys can take it from there. So we want to turn this into some sort of metric for everybody. And ours is right around 49 to 50% of our, our revenue minus our staffing costs is about 50%. So that's what it costs us to run the business. Historically in NARPM, that's around the average. Because that, that drill Tony Dross did in 2014, he was getting everything from 45% to 65%. So the end of the day, this is the metric that's actually going to mean something to the people that are listening out, that run management companies is what should I be? So if my metrics say, let's say I'm tracking 35% of staff expense, I'm doing awesome. What if I'm tracking 75%? I'm doing lousy. So now they know. If Without this study, without this metric, they wouldn't know potentially. So Brad, on that point... Let's talk about the logic of why somebody says that. Surely you've heard somebody say, well, yeah, my labor ratio is really high, but, you know, I'm in growth mode. I'm, I'm preparing and scaling for growth. That's great if it happens. But if that number has been static for the last 18 months, then you're just overstaffed, plain and simple. It's always going to have an asterisk by it. Bob Walters, the steel is thunder, is you can't have profits and growth at the same time. You either got to be growing or you got to be profitable. You know, you can't have both. And you can't have neither. Correct. You got to be one or the other. <laughs> or else you run a charity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was actually the, the, the third bucket, right, Jordan? We've got cl- client acquisition cost. That's, you know, the top of the funnel. Is it working? Then you've got lifetime value. Are you are you taking care of your, your clients over the lifetime of their time with you. Then you've got labor efficiency. And that's really the third bucket that you just touched on, Brad, that we want to get to. And here's here's why labor efficiency is important. Well, just because your clients are with you for 17 years of their life doesn't make your make, make, mean you're making money off of them. You know, if, if you know part of your value proposition is that you, you know, deliver pina coladas to their their doorstep every day. They might love you, but that could 
it's probably going to kill your direct labor costs and kill your profits. So labor productivity, I would say, is probably the single most important indicator of profitability in any business. And certainly that's going to include uh, property management businesses where, like you said, Brad, labor expenses probably represent you know somewhere between half to two-thirds of company expenses. Yeah, let me stop so, right there that you guys yeah. probably don't or won't forget. In the labor efficiency, the big questions are going to be, do I include my salary? Do I include yeah. my wife's salary? So mm-hmm. by this study, we're now going to define that. We're going to define, throw out your owner value proposition that you have for yourself. So discount your owner salaries or put in a a manageable IRS allowed figure, like pay yourself 50 grand a year, for example, and that's a figure you can use. So this is long before owner draws get to that point. It's just salaries. And so part of this is we're going to define that. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, and and so so we are going to define it. And basically... The approach that we're taking is a little bit uh, a little bit more granular than what you mentioned, Brad. Uh, although it's the same same basic idea. Uh, basically, and this touches to one of the questions that we got a few minutes ago. Uh, we're going to define direct labor and management labor, and it's a really crucial breakout uh, to to break those two things out because direct labor really tells you how efficiently you're servicing your clients, and you, and that's really important to know. Management labor tells you essentially how efficiently you're managing your direct labor or getting new clients on board. So. Direct labor, we define as anybody that spends 50% or more of their time providing client-facing value. So direct labor is anybody that spends 50% more of their, uh, or more of their time providing client-facing value. That's going to be your property managers. That's going to be your maintenance coordinators. That's going to be even your accountants. If they're spending 50% of their time reconciling accounts for the owners, that they would fall into that direct labor bucket as well. We're also going to be, and this is again where the clarity and definitions is going to help. We're, we're including outsourced direct labor, night tenders, call center services. That's also going to be considered direct labor as well. So we're all talking, you know, it, 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 these outsourced providers aren't going to be, you know, put down into some expense bucket. They're going to be considered outsourced labor as well. So the way we look at it is we basically say, okay, um, for for every dollar that I spend in direct labor, how many dollars should my direct labor force be able to generate in revenue? It's, it's kind of a motivating way of looking at it. And, and, and this is a metric that you could actually use with your uh, direct labor to say, okay, you know, for every dollar that you, you know, that we're paying you guys, you know, how, how much are you generating in revenue? And we, what we're seeing so far is that profitable uh, property management businesses uh, run in somewhere of the three to four range. So for every dollar that you spend on direct labor, you should probably be generating three to four dollars in in top line revenue. Or gross profit is, is a little more accurate. So so that breaks out direct labor. Uh, and we're going to get into more of this at PM Grow. But the other bucket, just to touch on one last thing, Jordan, would be management labor. And Brad, you brought up a great point. Management labor is where we can have a lot of things get skewed because of the way sometimes we like to play with our, our owner salaries to avoid taxes. What we're doing in this benchmarking study, if you're if you're playing with your owner salary and you're only paying yourself 30 grand. We're going to look at your balance sheet and say, well, he's actually paying himself another 70 grand 
in distributions. And now you combine a 30 and a 70, we're actually to a more accurate salary for an owner of around 100K. And that's what we're going to count to be your your management labor. So we're actually getting down to that level with a benchmarking study to create uh, some real good comparisons as to what your efficiency should be on the, the management labor side of things as well. So I love that example that you just brought up. There are two things that I think about. You know, this isn't a sermon. This isn't about moralizing and right and wrong. Some people... Nonetheless, we'll do that. And then that's the guy at the bar that wants you to beat you over the head with his crazy high profit percentage, when in reality, his numbers are being distorted by the fact that he's taking out giant owner draws. But the other thing is the utility of this. The most One of the actionable forms of utility is when you think about valuating your business, you can't get any clarity if the way you're looking at it is completely different than somebody else that's going to come into your business, because you know they're going to normalize that data. At the end of the day, they're going to figure out what you're actually taking. Um, and valuations are, are, you can have a shocking experience getting your company evaluated if you're, if you're making that mistake. And honestly, it provides good accountability for, for, for owners as well. You know, whether it's, you know, me and my business or you and your business, uh, we need to we need to get an accurate look at what our actual profit numbers are uh, by not skewing things like you know owner salary because you know it, it stings at first to be like oh shoot I thought I was making you know twenty percent profitability now I'm like at you know ten or five but that's the sort of accountability and the clarity that will drive change and growth and and make you a more profitable business and that could lead into the one metric that we've all kind of wanted. And, you know, we're talking about the you know, sitting at the bar and somebody walks up to you and says, how many doors you manage, man? And you say, I manage X. You're like, oh, man, I manage 10 times more than that. I'm way better than you. If it all could be boiled down to what's your profit margin in a percentage, that could be an actual metric that you guys can help define with this study. Yeah. How do we get to that bottom of the funnel, using Jordan's term, of actually giving you a profit margin percentage? Because then you know if you're healthy or not. If you're running a 5% profit margin and you're d- defining it correctly, you're doing something wrong. You need to go back and Femax or you need to yeah. sell, right? Because you're doing something wrong. If you're running a 40% profit margin, which is probably pretty high, you're doing double thumbs up. And maybe you need to sell too because you could take it and run and start another one. But uh, the point is, I think that bottom of the funnel profit margin percentage is one that we track. But I'm also starting to think, listening to you, man, are we tracking that correctly with my stuff and my owner salaries and my my offshore salaries and all this other stuff? Are we tracking it correctly? But if we can get on the yeah. same page there and mm-hmm. we go through this whole drill, at the bottom of that funnel should be that profit margin percentage. And then I can, I can honestly put that out to somebody in conversation and feel good about it and know I defined it correctly. Yeah. And, and I, let me take that one step further and say profit margin percentage, but what about profit margin per door. So on every door that I manage, you know, I'm, is, is it 20 bucks? Is it 30 bucks? Is it 50 bucks? And that really, uh, you know, starts to provide a lot of clarity about, okay, I'm going to spend all this money on, you know, acquiring a new business or acquiring a new client. But if I'm making five bucks a month per, per door, you know, I need to take a look at my business. That's something that we have to define because we have to throw out or include whatever we decide as a panel with all the, yeah. the property managers that join is you have to throw out the ancillary businesses you to, or yeah. do you include them. Do you include the leasing? Do you include the sales? Do you include the maintenance? Do you include the late fees? You see where I'm going? All those things yeah. got to be defined. 
So as you, as you say that, both Danny and I are, are looking for the, the aspirin and the, and the Tylenol because it's a non-trivial headache to actually clean up the books and to, to just get a pure property management focus. We're wading through some of that work right now. But we're going to do a Q&A specifically on the benchmarking study in a minute and going to focus on that. For now, we have got some questions from those of you that are listening to this live, and I want to answer those one by one. The first is, how can I learn more about unit economics? Well, you could go Google unit economics. What I would actually suggest, though, is to click on the link at the bottom of this event that says PM Benchmarking Study and to go sign up for the Property Management Industry Benchmarking Study because those of you that sign up are not only going to have your data contribute, but you're also going to get a sit down with Danny and myself to actually look at how your data compares to the overall global set of data. So that's firsthand, that's personalized, that's the best way to learn more about unit economics in my humble opinion. Next question is, the 15% churn rate is after adding in gains. Is that correct? And Danny, I believe that's spit at you. Uh, no. I, I, maybe I'm not understanding the question, but hopefully you're, you know, once you add in gains, you're not churning. Hopefully you're growing. But the, the 15% churn rate that Brad, and I would, I would agree with that number, is just losses on an annual basis. So you take your beginning units at the beginning of the year. So you started with 500. If you lost 100 through the course of the year, you're at a 20% churn rate. Hopefully that makes sense. I mean, it, it almost seems like naively simple, but it's accurate. Next question is, where can I learn the specific difference between direct and indirect labor? You got any more color commentary there, Danny? Yeah, I think she asked that before uh, we just went through the specifics. But essentially, direct labor, again, the definition is anyone that spends 50% or more of their time providing client-facing value. It's, it's a whole body in a bucket. It's a body in a bucket. So we're not, you know, hey, half my time is this and half my time is that. It's 50% or more, then your whole, your whole body goes in that bucket. Uh, management labor is essentially everything else. And then we break out sales and marketing labor as a subset of management labor. Now, Danny, what about half bodies? What if I'm getting hung up on the fact that I got a, a quarter of this person's time goes towards this, that? Do we, do we just not worry about that? And if so, why? Uh, because, you know, uh, <laughs> this is coming from a finance guy, but at some point we, we, we have to keep this achievable. And so uh, we, we, we are aware of the fact that if our sophistication be, get, gets so complicated that no one can actually, you know, do this stuff, then it's useless. So we're trying, it's, it's really out of simplicity, uh, Jordan. We, we, and that's, that's where we draw the line. Makes sense to me. Another question from Michael, and you may have just answered this, but the question is, what if your management labor, rec labor are the same in the case of an owner manager who is also the PM? How do you suggest to allocate costs in this case? And I guess you just answered it as, as you take where the majority of your time falls and yeah. Yeah. There, there we go. Yep. All right. Next question from Matthew Tringali. In addition to owner salary and distributions, are you also going to factor in owner perks? For example, a company, car, travel, and other ways that small business owners offset their taxable income. That's a really good question, Danny. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Let me help you out on that. So, for example, my truck, my F two fifty, goes straight out of the company account. It's actually in SATX PM LLC, my actual LLC. Clearly, it's a line, right? It'd be real easy to discount. Yeah. But part of this project is to define that. 
So we're going to yeah. work with you guys on listing. You include this, 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 and this. Yeah. You throw out yeah. this, 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 and this. I mean, just to answer the question, thanks for the clarification. No, uh, we're talking compensation either in the form of W-2 wages or owner distributions. This is the way to think about owner salary. If someone bought the business and I ceased working for the business, what would they have to pay as a market-based wage to replace me? And that's really where you need to be in terms of how you think about the actual cost of your labor. You need to, you need to be in the range of, of, of a market-based wage. And one other thing I'll say on that, you might be saying, well, I, I still want to play with the books uh, to decrease taxes. Okay, you can do that, especially if you're an escort. However, just be aware that any sort of those kind of goofy, goofy things that are going on with your business, if you ever want to sell, uh, that's going to cause problems. You're going to get a discount uh, for financial distortions. So I would really recommend not goofing off with your owner's salary if you want to sell because what you want to prove to the people is that all the costs and all the income in my business is exactly true. And no matter who's filling these roles, if you buy my business, you're going to be able to maintain the same profitability. And here's another good reason why we want to do this, to put everybody on the same page in a defined orderly manner, is to prepare to sell, but also to prepare your business to borrow money to buy another mm. business. If sure. your books are squeaky clean and your yeah. competitor comes to you and says, hey, man, I'm out, I'm moving, I want to sell, and you need to go get a half million bucks, you can take those clean yeah. books, go to the bank, and borrow money to get that deal done. Yep. Couldn't agree. More And anybody who's ever done an SBA loan to try and acquire another management company will tell you that it's a nightmare. So anything you can do to make your financing less of a nightmare in the process of an acquisition is going to be huge. Let's transition now, guys, to talking about some of the specific challenges associated with the benchmarking study. We talked about the fact that we're doing it. If you want to read more, if you want to read the full description, click on that green button at the bottom of what you're looking at right now where it says PM Benchmarking Steady, or you can go to the URL leadsimple.com forward slash benchmarking, and you'll be able to get more information. But there's really two big goals. The first is common standardized definitions. The other is the actual benchmarking data. We're planning on releasing this at PM Grow. We're actively looking at participants. The participants are going to get a one-on-one consultation to look at how their data compares to the rest of the industry. Intensely valuable. But in the process of doing this, it is a work in progress. There are a lot of challenges with normalizing this data. And so I just wanted to kind of open up the kimono and give you guys a little bit of a view into that. Danny, what would you say are some of the key challenges that we've run into thus far in trying to get this study off the ground? Yeah, I think I mean it has to do with the two key sources of data. Uh, the first is the financial side of things. Uh, most people are probably tracking their company books separately from the the property management software using something like QuickBooks or something like that. The first barrier is what we've been talking about. There's there's you know probably three hundred different chart, you know, items that we'll be looking at across maybe four, probably four or 500 different income items across all the different participants and boiling those down into maybe five to 10 key buckets uh, and, and basically creating an apples to apples comparison, uh, both on the income side of things and on the expense side of things. So that's, that's one thing. Then the other source of data would be the property management system. Um, 
interestingly, some of the key uh, pieces of information that we uh, are talking about, for example, churn, the, the units you lost in a particular period, uh, there are no good reports in either Appfolio or Propertyware to determine that. Um, so we've been actively talking with the teams at both of those companies uh, coming up with the report so that we can actually historically generate that information over the last three years for all the participants in the study uh, so that we can can actually know what an industry churn rate is. And that will affect customer lifetime value. So those are the sorts of challenges, uh, but we're getting through them. You know, We also have a good handful of advisors on board like Brad that are helping us look at certain complications like, okay, lease only revenue. Now, how does that, fact, how does that factor in? Um, I might be getting lease only income, but do I have units? And are, are those lease only units in my property management software? Well, lease only units really shouldn't be considered towards your total unit count of units under management because you're not getting you know full lifetime value out of those okay so then how do we extract that information and come up with a true unit count that is really units under management and then how do we correlate that to the income side of things and pull out the least only revenue and ah so um those are the sorts of things that that we're working through because we really want to be accurate and careful with the study all right so you forgot probably my my favorite thorny question and that is the multifamily equivalency and, and handling that whole thing the, the I would say the focus of the study is single family homes, uh, but a lot of the people that are going to be participating in the study probably have a mix. First thing we're going to want to do is define multifamily and single family for your homes. As we talked about before, according to FHA guidelines on a loan or VA guidelines, anything one to four units is considered single family air quotes. So if you take anything five units or more as multifamily, that could be something we can define in the study. Yeah, and we are running with that with that definition. Then the next step is okay. You know, what's my if if you know half my units are multifamily? What's what's really my customer acquisition cost? Because I can't I can't afford to spend the same amount of money that Joe can afford to spend on a single family home with a customer lifetime value of two to three grand. You know, if I'm in a multifamily that, you know, maybe my customer lifetime value is a grand or something. So we're going to be defining, you know, what a true unit is and, you know, how we're actually coming up with unit counts to account for the fact that the value of a multifamily unit isn't the same as the value of a single family home. So we're actually still in the process of uh, pulling the numbers and doing the comparison to come up with a correlation there. But that's uh how we're going to be handling that issue is actually go into the books and come up with a ratio uh, in terms of the management fee revenue generated off of a single family home versus a multifamily unit and doing a correlation and a comparison that way. Ooh, makes me tired even just talking about it, but it's a worthy project and we're excited to be undertaking it. Hopefully as you guys are listening you got some benefit out of what we're talking about today. Hopefully you can join us for the benchmarking study. You can be at the PM Growth Summit in San Diego. But if none of apply to you, we hope today that this stimulated some thoughts when you think about how you are looking at the numbers inside of your business and how you get clarity to be making the best use of your time and dollars as you pursue growth in your business. Danny, Brad, I really appreciate you guys taking the time for jumping on with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to be working with you guys on this. This is fun. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. All right, guys. We'll be in touch. Have a good one. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you soon.